So in Luke, Luke chapter 22 is what we're going to look at. Let me pray and we'll jump into that. God, we love you. Thank you for a chance to gather here as a local family of believers. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would celebrate you in, uh, in practicing this, this 2,000-year-old ceremony of celebrating who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke 22, verse 7. This is a picture of what is happening uh, the last night of, of Jesus being with his disciples or just his inner circle of followers and how uh, one of the last things they did was celebrate the Passover meal. And this is something the Jewish people would celebrate once a year. And it was very familiar. And there, there was a very uh, thorough process that they would walk through of all these different um, elements of food that, they would, that, that, that would help them remember the very specific things that God did in bringing them out of Egypt. Um, and, and at this point, uh, give you a little context, uh, Jesus' followers would have celebrated this with Jesus you would imagine at least a couple times as this was something definitely they would do every year. Um, and so we get a picture of this last celebration that he has with, with his disciples. And then towards the end, uh, and we're going to jump into an account in Matthew that we have also of it, of how Jesus kind of changes this 3,500-year-old ceremony at this point. Back then, 2,000 years ago, it still would have been 1,500 years old. And how Jesus kind of makes a, a turn and points it to himself. Um, and so our hope this morning is that you have a fuller appreciation and understanding of the Lord's Supper or, or communion. And that you do not view it as some kind of ritual that you just take place when you go to church once in a while. Or maybe you've been in churches where they even do it every Sunday and it's just a part of what you do. But actually something that... that we remember, as Jesus asks us to, he said, do this in remembrance of me, um, that we actually remember what Jesus has done, and it turns into a celebration. And so not a ritual that we think, you know, hey, if we do this, somehow God will, you know, give us some, some you know, blessings or something, trying to get something for him or feel like we need to do this in order that we're right with God or that somehow this thing makes us a Christian or this thing along with some other ceremonies makes us a Christian. No, that's not the case at all. This is a celebration that we are made a believer. We're made a Christian basically just through faith in Christ and that we celebrate what Jesus has accomplished through this. Now, the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Uh, another name for the Passover celebration, um, the festival of unleavened bread. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. Uh, they asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him at the house he enters. Say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. There, uh, That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have 
I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you, now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's already giving them some indicators of like, this isn't going to be just a normal Passover meal that you've celebrated for, you know, your whole life every year with your family or and community. Um, this is going to be uh, pointing to something different. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And that's where he really begins to go on a completely different direction, being very direct and pointing to himself and what he's accomplishing, and specifically what his spilled blood and what his sacrifice of his body is, is going to do, be a sacrifice. Um, and so, like I mentioned, this was a 3,500-year-old ceremony that people, that the, the Jewish people had done to celebrate what? Now, many of you may know the historical context that uh, the Jewish people were, were in bondage and in slavery under the Egyptians. Uh, they, they, you know, you read the end of Genesis, you see how Joseph um, eventually found himself in the court of Pharaoh and, and, and his, uh, the uh, God's chosen people uh, eventually wind up there, but they start out in the good graces of the Pharaoh. Uh, but but over the many many years, uh, sadly, it turns into setting them aside and, and using them and putting them in a position of slavery. Um, and so they cried out to God. They looked to God for for uh, a salvation out of this situation. Uh, God gives them and works through Moses eventually. And uh, he uses 10 plagues or 10 miracles and signs showing Pharaoh. And Pharaoh thinks of himself and the people think of himself as a god, kind of a, a god-man. And, and Pharaoh and, and the, the Egyptian uh, really superpower of the day, really the superpower was, was Egypt of the day. And so... Um, they didn't like to recognize, especially Pharaoh himself, he did not like to recognize that there was any higher authority or anything or anybody more powerful than himself. But God uses uh, Moses to, to bring these miraculous signs and plagues. And the last one being death of the firstborn, that the angel of death would come over households and the firstborn would die, except there was a way of salvation. And that way of salvation was the instructions given to God's people. If they would, if they would sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on their door, over their door, the angel of death would pass over that house, and death wouldn't come to that house. And so eventually that is the, the final plague that convinces Pharaoh, even though he still kind of turns back on it and chases after him, but it's the one that that um, let the people go, <laughs> um, to, to quote Charlton Heston, right? Um, to let the people out of Egypt 
and they went with even the riches of, because this was something that was prophesied about, and, and they went with the riches of uh, the Egyptians even with them. And so they celebrate this wonderful thing, and at this point, 1,500 years later, they're still celebrating this every year, this incredible, the greatest thing, the greatest form of salvation they've seen God perform in the nation of Israel. There was some, I, I mean, you know, sometimes I think we don't understand the context or whatever. Like, you know, is this like a group of a few hundred people, a few thousand people? Uh, scholars estimate between one and two million, and I've even heard higher figures. Two million is the one that I hear the most. Uh, this is a large group of of people. And then they go into the wilderness, and uh, because of some disobedience, they kind of wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But part of even that in the Passover meal is God provided for them in the desert miraculously through giving them this stuff that's, that's the translation of it is, what is this? And we know it as manna. And they, they, it's this, this bread stuff that kind of appears every morning, and they're given specific instructions. But, but they eat bread as part of their Passover meal with a lot of other elements, and that's part of that is to remember how God uh, provided for them. Um, and then you think about the context of where they are. Where are they celebrating Passover meal? What city is Jesus in at this point? I like this interaction. Jerusalem. That's right. So they're in the promised land. They're in the, the center of the promised land, the, the city of the, the promised land, you might say. And so they're in that context, um, and they're pointed to that. I, I thought another cool thing as you study how they did the Passover meal is uh, the oldest uh, person in the, uh, usually it was done within an extended family. And one thing, it was like a Super Bowl party. Okay, not that they were like watching, you know, some kind of ancient football, but it was long. We celebrate Passover, and it's like five minutes, you know, walk in, do it, okay, you know, and walk out. And and the Passover meal was something that like this is an annual event, and man, this is a party, and there's lots of wine involved, and it's almost like a drinking game if you. You know, they have to, like, drink four full cups. No. Okay. Stick to the notes, Ben. Don't say things on the top of your head. Um, but uh, anyways, they celebrated for hours. And, and what I think is cool is they talked about who God was and the promises and his character and nature and how he's been faithful for hours, you know. Um, and, and so I, I love how God's people just have this history of that. Um, and I, I was mentioning before the, uh, the patriarch, the oldest, uh, person in the room, part of the ceremony was to ask questions to the youngest person in the room. And that was part of reminding them and passing down to the next generation who God was, how he has been faithful, how he can be trusted, how he fulfills his promises. Um, and so that, that's kind of a, a neat context that it was um, the next generation was made sure that they were a part of this uh, this problem, problem, this uh, ceremony. I don't know where that came from. Exodus 6, 6 through 8. What I want to do this morning is look at this promise that they're celebrating. Just a couple verses here that spells out the promise that God makes and what they're celebrating of what he accomplished. 
Um, and so in Exodus, we'll begin, like I said, in 6, chapter 6, verse 6 says, Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own uh, possession. I am the Lord. And so just right off the bat, you see that there is one active character in this this promise. That God very boldly proclaims that he is going to do this. He is going to accomplish this. That it's, that it's all him. And in this uh, ceremony that they would do in celebrating the Passover meal, they would reflect upon the four promises that we see in these verses, in this promise. This is where, they, well, this is where the term comes, promised land, based on this promise that God's giving them. And so they would go throughout the night and they would, um, they would drink these four cups in celebration. We even do that today often. Uh, that, that you toast and you're celebrating something or somebody by raising your glass and, and, and you know, having a toast based on that. Well, they would kind of do that with these four cups that they would walk through to remember the promises that God fulfilled. And the first promise, promise number one, and I apologize, there's not like an outline in your notes or anything. Um, just uh, the three R things that we're going to reflect on on the end. But if you want to take any notes, here's some good, um, some good notes to take about four promises that we see in here. Because here's what's important. Not like, this is history, I'm bored. These are promises to you. Now, they have a greater fulfillment in Jesus. But what God is doing and what Jesus is doing in this Last Supper is saying, okay, here's what God did through his people redeeming redeeming them out of Egypt. Beautiful, wonderful thing. Don't want to take anything away from that. But God's doing something greater, something bigger through Jesus. And all of that was a foreshadowing, a pointing to to what God is ultimately doing in Jesus. And so so these promises are to you in an even greater way. So the first promise was, I will free you from oppression. You can see that in the very first verse. I will free you from oppression. Now think of your life as a slave. And, and this is, you know, an abusive system as we see the description of what they went through, the demands that they had. Uh, this is a horrible uh, way to live. And, and, and sadly, humans have done this to other humans, and there's absolutely zero justification for it. It's evil. It's wrong. And, and when uh, communities and people and cultures have had to go through that, they, there is a sense of hopelessness that can set in. There is a sense that all you're waiting for and hoping for is death. And, um, and there is a lack of future. If you kind of put yourself in that in that scenario, there's no hope for any better future. You're stuck in a situation that you have no ability to get out of, and it's horrible. Um, and and God comes along and says, "I'm going to f- free you from that oppression, that sense of hopelessness and no future." In Jesus, we have a hope and a future 
that is promised and it's based on what Jesus fulfills so we know we can trust it that takes us completely out of that. That hopelessness should not ever describe someone who's in Christ. That we have something beyond this temporary world, no matter what it throws at us, that we have a future and a, a promise and a, a assured hope of, the, of, of how beautiful that's going to be. Number two, uh, a promise that we see is that uh, he will rescue them from slavery. As we've walked through Romans, we'll pick that up next week. We'll be at the end of chapter 8, I believe, um, and we're going to look more at this this difficult problem of like, there's evil in the world and a God who's, in, uh, who's all-powerful, and how do we, how do we wrestle with that? Um, but as we look at that, we've seen in Romans a picture time and time again that being and living under sin is slavery. That, that that's how a lot of people choose to live their lives is if they don't live for God, really it comes down to them living for themselves and um, that, that kind of rebellion against understanding that you're created to live for God, that, that sin just brings heartache and death and dissatisfaction. And, and, um, and he's come to free them from slavery, literal slavery. But Jesus comes and frees us from the slavery of sin um, and, and gives us freedom in Christ. Another cool thing that we see in this, in this that they're reminding themselves is you could not pour your own drink. Talked about four cups of wine. Some of you guys got excited about that. Like, I want to be more biblical. And Okay, I try to be funny. Um, so the four cups of wine, you could not pour your own, refill your own cup after they would celebrate a cup and drink it. That part of the ceremony was someone else had to pour it. And that reminded them of two things. One, that they weren't in slavery. And that, you know, someone who's in slavery, they're the ones serving. They're not the ones being served. And so they were reminding themselves of that. But also that what it points to is that this is done in community. That God has never, uh, his plan has never been, okay, just, just you and God and that's it. And, and today... And, and I think there's some, some understandable justifications people make that, like, churches aren't perfect and God's people aren't perfect, right? I heard that rumor. Is that true? Yes, that's very true. <laughs> and uh, so eh, I've been hurt before or whatever. Or I just want to do my own thing. It's just going to be me and God, and, and that's all I need. We don't see any description of that being the way God wants us to live ever in any setting. I mean, the early church, even the community that, that we see, this Passover, the family, all these things, God has wired us and built us and called us into community. And it's messy. And it's, it's, it's sometimes not easy because we're all broken. We're all messed up. You know, okay, this is kind of cliche. I'm going to say it anyways. If you guys find a perfect church, don't join it because then it won't be perfect anymore. All right, right? So all that to say, I know, you know, I, I think I can see and, and I can identify. I could be in your club if you've, if you've had that history of, of you know, the, God's people or even what we would call a church, a local church gathering. 
uh, being hurtful and painful, but God, that's not a good excuse to say I'm not going to be in community. I'm not going to be connected. Um, and so we're so glad. Here I'm talking, preaching to the choir, kind of. You guys are, are with us here, and you're with other people worshiping. This is important. Um, that's another reason that we even want to take it a step further and encourage you to consider being a part of a life group where you really can be known by other people and other people can know you. And the picture of that that we get in Scripture is this community where you have all these one-anotherings going on. Many of you have heard me talk about these, that you pray for one another, that you encourage one another, that you, uh, that you even confess sin to one another, which can be really helpful and get you out of some traps and things. Um, but, but that's the sense in which even way back for, for 3,500 years now, um, as, as our Jewish friends continue to celebrate Passover, they remind themselves that, that we're not supposed to, there's not a solo version of, of following God, that he wants us in community. Number three, the promise is I will redeem you. Some of these may sound from, uh, similar, and there are some similarities. But, but first, he's taking you out of this hopeless oppression. And then he's promising to take you um, out of something that, that is slavery, that controls you and, and sucks life out of you, really. And then redeeming you is giving you purpose, is giving you value and, and worth. Um, and you think about if you have a coupon to redeem. Once you redeem that coupon at the store, you get value out of it. If you have a ticket that you bought for a concert and you redeem that ticket, then you can go in and enjoy the concert. So he's redeeming you to, to, to put you in a position where you're valuable in your life has purpose and, and living out your, what God wants you to do accomplishes God's will. Now, and I, I may have kind of alluded to this, but, you know, as I talked about God and this picture of all his promises, it's all God. He does it all. Um, but that's, you know, as we talk about, well, God wants you to do, do stuff for him. What we never, what we understand about the gospel is that we can never earn our salvation. So there's something totally different from living my life for God out of thanksgiving, out of the purpose that he's given me, out of the gifts that he's given me to accomplish his will. And it's, what is that? Good works and doing things for God. But it's not good works or it's not finding purpose and living for God in any way that earns your right standing before God. Because what Jesus did on the cross is, is sufficient completely and has earned that. Um, and so... That's the third uh, promise that we see. In Matthew 26, 26 through 29, we're going to pick up, uh, I mentioned, a, uh, another picture of this exact same meal in another gospel. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. Now, let me just stop there because this is interesting. I, I have a lot of friends who grew up in a tradition. Um, actually, most of my friends where I grew up back home grew up in a tradition that they, they had a form of church that taught them that, that the, uh, the leaders of the church and the authority of the church had the ability to bless the sacrament, to bless the, the, uh, the, the, the wine and the bread in such a way that something 
mystical and mysterious happened where in some essence the bread and the wine literally becomes the blood and body of of Jesus. Um, Some of you guys might be familiar with, you know, what I'm talking about and what tradition would teach that. Um, and, And the thing that just seems to be not line up with that at all is the very first place time it takes place, that's not what happened. Um, and this may sound kind of weird, but Jesus didn't like cut off a hunk of flesh and pass it around. You know, it wasn't that his literal body at that point that they somehow needed to consume or, or, or you know, take in that, in that manner. He didn't, you know, do a little, I don't know, you know, a little like a blood brother thing and, you know, pour out some blood and passing that around. And actually, there was a weird misunderstanding in the early church when they wanted to vilify Christians in, in, in uh, I mean, the first couple hundred years. They called them cannibals, you know, and they would use that as a way to say, throw them into the lion's den and, you know, torture them and persecute them because they're cannibals. Where did they get that? Same line of thinking, the exact same thing. Instead of seeing this for what it is, symbolic that Jesus, you know, gave his his life on a cross and his blood was spilt on that cross and that his body was given uh, for our sins um, in death on that cross, that we're celebrating communion is symbolic of that and pointing to that. Because obviously it's even real descriptive. Jesus says, I'm taking this bread, take this. And he says, my blood, my body. But he's saying, take this bread and take this wine. I know that's kind of weird to maybe go over, but it it takes it to why some theology behind making sure, here's what my hope is, that you don't view taking communion or doing the Lord's Supper in some way that that is some kind of ceremony or ritual that you do that makes you get God's grace or gives you salvation, or makes you a Christian, or even blesses you in some way. That, that actually, um, you know, we get the same picture that helps us with baptism, the criminal on the cross, right? The criminal on the cross has zero ability to do anything except place his confidence, his trust, his faith in Jesus. He's got two guys next to him. One mocks him, rejects him. And the other one says, you're who you say you are. You're the Messiah. And Jesus turns to him and says, okay, we better do communion real quick. We, you got to get baptized. You got your checkbook on you? You need to write a check and tithe or something. Of course, none of that. He, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise based on you simply proclaiming and having faith that I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. And so... We wouldn't ever want the Lord's Supper, as we've seen, sadly, in Christian history, it being used as something that, well, if, if this group or this church has the authority to bless it in a way that makes it into something literal, then you need that literal thing in order for grace and for God's forgiveness to be granted to you. Get me? Some of you guys are following me. Maybe, maybe some. Maybe all. Okay. So, um, so it goes on to say, and he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood. Again, same kind of issue there. 
which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, What's interesting about this point is it's at the third cup. And I mentioned that there were four cups that had to be uh, a part of the celebration of the Passover that they drank. And he doesn't drink the last cup. And he changes the, the ceremony. And he points it to himself. Just like his cousin pointed to him. As, as they, part of the meal, they would, they would consume lamb. And I already talked about bread. They would bitter herbs and lots of different things that, that would remind them of their days of slavery. And, and, and different things. We won't take time to go through all those. Interesting study if you want to check that out. Um, But his cousin is John the Baptist. And his role that God gave him was to pave the way for Jesus. And and he called people to repent. Basically, what repentance means is agree with God. Quit denying and lying to yourself and saying you're fine. And agree with God that you're broken and you're messed up and you need forgiveness. And you need to come to him and say, I have rebelled against you. I've sinned against you. That's all repentance is, is agreeing with God. And so he came with a, with a message of repentance, and then people would be baptized uh, based on saying that they repent, and they need a cleansing, they need a washing. So it was different from the baptism that we celebrate, but, but all that was pointing to a people who thought, we're right with God because we're God's people. We're Jewish. That's what makes us right with God. We do things like the Passover meal. God has intervened in our history and, and done these. Mar- we are God's chosen. They got an arrogance about, about it because they were God's chosen people. And, and what, what, Jesus, what God wanted to make clear with God's people is that you need a Savior. And I'm sending my Savior. He's coming right after John. John's pointing and kind of paving the way for him. And you, you Jewish people who I love, you need to know that you need a Savior. And many of them didn't come to that place and didn't come to that point of understanding that they weren't right just because they were Jewish, but they needed a Savior just like we all do. And so what did all this to say, his cousin John, when he uh, is kind of introducing Jesus for the first time, proclaims this about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Here's the ultimate Lamb. We have... For 1,500 years, probably sacrificed millions of animals. And they had different other grain sacrifices and stuff. But there has been an incredible amount of blood spilt to deal with our sin on a temporary basis. Like we had to keep coming back to try to get, (laughs) that's funny, Uh, try to get our sin covered. It It was this ongoing thing. And, and the ultimate thing that would point to that was a lamb and pointing back to, to even this picture of, of uh, the Passover. And, and he points to his cousin and says, here's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the final sacrifice needed to cover the sin of the world. There's nothing we can add to it or make it more complete in some way. And so um, all that to say that that, that Jesus stops at this point of the third cup 
And then we get a picture in Scripture that they go to a garden, the garden uh, where he prays to the Father. And what is his prayer? First of all, he's kind of frustrated with his followers, right? The disciples, they're with him. What do they keep doing? Sleeping. But man, they just had three cups of wine and a big meal. <laughs> all right, so you got to be a little sympathetic. Uh, but you kind of see the context of what's happening. I mean, you know, you could see why they might be in that state. But you could also see Jesus' response. But what they do in that setting, what's interesting is Jesus prays. What does he pray? God the Father, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. And I think sometimes we just, well, what is this specific cup that he's talking about? But he's pointing to this ceremony that they've been doing. And he doesn't complete the last cup. And he goes and he prays because he knows that this has all been pointing to him. All been pointing to God's plan that he's had since eternity past. And he knows what's about to happen. And he has this intense moment with God the Father. And I love that we have this experience because first we just see just how real and authentic it is. And we see it doesn't take away anything from Jesus asking if there's any other way. Let this cup pass from me. Let me not fulfill what the Passover meal is really all about. But he goes on to complete it, right? So we know there is no other way. There is no other means. There is no other religious system. There is no, no other way to be right with God except through what Jesus does on the cross. And then, as he says, I'm not completing this Passover meal now. On the cross, he proclaims that it is completed. He, pro- he proclaims ultimately that God's plan and, and the, the, the sacrifice for sin has been fulfilled as he cries out and says, it is finished. It is done. And so this is all tied in to the experience that they're having that evening. Um, and so... In Romans 5.1, just as a reminder, uh, I talked about us looking at Romans in the last few months. I love this verse. Uh, It says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight, by what? By faith. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. And, And that's the tragedy, to ever take a ceremony that's helped to make us remember and celebrate and turn it into something that we think is necessary or that we need to add to what Jesus has done for us. And so, Jesus, you haven't done enough. I need to, on some kind of regular basis, whatever we think that might be, I need to, I need to partake in the ceremony to make myself right with God. That's not what the Lord's Supper was ever intended to do, but a celebration and a remembrance. And I think it's interesting. I, I, uh, I have, on a regular basis, I have people ask, why don't we celebrate it every week? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I've even thought about, hey, maybe we should. One reason we don't is we don't want it to become so routine that we don't give it the, the proper respect and reflection uh, that, that we hope it has, that it's just, hey, we walk in, we check in, we grab our donut, we drink some coffee, we take the Lord's Supper, like, and that's why we're taking even a whole Sunday to kind of look at the context of this, that we, we really see what it's all about. And so that's one reason, um, and, and I, I met, I heard a girl was telling a story of how uh, she grew up in a Christian household, and they took 
uh, the Lord's Supper every single morning before school. Her family would do it. And I thought, man, that's awesome. That's pretty cool. Um, but, but that's just one reason that, that we don't do that. As, as it is kind of birthed out of um, the last, or I'm sorry, the Passover meal, they only did it once a year. Um, and, and so, and we do see a picture in the early church that they did it on a very regular basis. But it, to me, I, I don't think it is the frequency in which you do it. Jesus said, he didn't say it, do this often. He said, as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, and so we just, overall, we want to make sure um, that we uh, have the right uh, way of viewing it. And, and I do have a small fear if people think, oh, no, I haven't done communion, that, that they're viewing it wrong. They, what, where's the fear of not doing it? They think by doing it, somehow they are right with God. And that's not how we're right with God. We're right with God through faith in Christ alone. Okay? Right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so the fourth promise, as we wrap up this morning, and then we'll take communion. It says, I will claim you as my people, your God. And that, that picture in Exodus that we got. That was his last promise to, to his people. And he said, I'm calling you into my family. You're going to be my people. And that ultimately in Jesus, as we've walked through Romans more and more, what does he do? He adopts us into his family. And he gives us full-on sonship, full-on daughtership. And says, you're even heirs to the kingdom. That, that you are part of and. And, and we get a glimpse of this, I think, on this, on even here. If you've walked with Jesus for a while, and you know what I was talking about earlier, being in communion and connection with other believers, they're your family more than your blood family. Now, before anyone takes offense with that, I don't in any way want to diminish the beautiful relational, you know, uh, birth family that we're birthed into. That's God's plan. That's his design. That's beautiful. But there's something even greater, a sense of family. As, as Jesus even, he referred to his followers as, as friends sometimes. But um, the first time that we see him call them brothers is uh, after the resurrection. He's resurrected and, and uh, ladies are the first ones to come and be witnesses to that. And he tells them, Go tell my brothers. And that's the first uh, picture that we get of that. Um, and so, uh, wow. Like, what an incredible thing to remember and reflect upon that God has called us into his family, that he's adopted us uh, through Jesus. And, and that's, that's his ultimate promise that, that he wants to give us. And it's an eternal thing. It's not a temporary thing of we're God's people here on this earth like our Jewish uh, uh, friends, but it would be this eternal promise in Christ. Um, so what we want to do when we, as we uh, end this morning is take communion. Now we have, I have mixed reviews about these, <laughs> but it's, you know, sometimes it's challenging to logistically uh, do this. So we have these little convenient packages. I'm going to ask the band to come on up here um, and I'm going to read uh, the last passage, the one that I, I use the most when we do communion, and it's Paul giving very in, direct instructions to the church in Corinth. They had kind of abused the Lord's Supper, and they used it in kind of weird ways, and, and um, they kind of abused it and didn't reflect on what it was all about. 
some people, they would be distracted. They were just hungry, and they wanted they, they wouldn't allow everybody to partake in it. There was this, this weird kind of segregation they had going on. Um, some people would get drunk, and, and, the, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. Guys, don't do this in the wrong way. Let me give you some clear instructions on this. So in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, it says, For I pass to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And then he goes on and gives a challenge, and I want you guys to really take this challenge ser- seriously. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. And so let me just give you a couple instructions. This is, you know, kind of for convenience, but again, this, this is just symbolic. And this is just a way that we can make this a little easier. But you'll find the bread element on the very top. There's kind of a piece of cellophane on the top. And you peel that off for the bread element. And then the juice is under it. And I'll ask you guys to take it just as we begin the music. But I want you to take as much time as you would like to reflect and and, and follow what Scripture tells us to do here. Reflect on why you're taking this. Remember what this is all about. The other reflection we're called to make is, is to think about our relationship with God. First of all and foremost, I hope we understand that Jesus did it all. That we remember. We wouldn't somehow say it's Jesus plus doing the ceremony. How sad. It's, it's really the opposite message that we're given. That Jesus did it all and this is helping us remember that, that this isn't actual Jesus' blood. This isn't his actual body. But he did give his body and give his blood to complete that sacrifice needed. And so to remember that and then to reflect on how that changes us. And, and is there something uh, broken in relationships that we have? Are we following this Jesus who changes uh, the way we think and the way we act? Um, not that we become perfect, but, but it says that we're a new creation if we're in Christ and that there should be some newness that's happening in our lives. And it's something to reflect about as we reflect on our relationship with God. We also want to reflect on our relationship with others and just take a moment and pray about any broken relationships where we need to extend the kind of forgiveness that we've been given, an undeserved forgiveness, uh, a forgiveness that, that, that doesn't, isn't fair. Um, uh, and so reflect on those. Or if there's anything hindering your relationship with God, if there's some sin that's really dominant in your life that you're struggling with, this is a time not to exclude you from partaking in this, but to reflect on it and and deal with that with God in a prayerful way and then take the Lord's Supper. And so we we just ask you as we sing to kind of examine uh, those kind of things and then just take it kind of at your own uh, as you feel led.